Welcome to the Network Collective, a community of network engineers. In this episode, we are talking with Eric Osterweil, a professor at George Mason University, who has a long history in volumetric and side attacks in the global internet. So grab a pile of cookies, that's for you, Yvonne. Hang on tight for a deep dive into the world of analytics and security. Sponsoring today's episode, in part, is CoreBTS. CoreBTS is a relationship-focused, value-added reseller who can add experience and expertise throughout your entire technology stack. Also sponsoring today's episode is Cumulus Networks, maker of the world's most flexible network operating system. Cumulus is looking to add soul to your network. Simple, open, untethered Linux. We'll hear more from today's sponsors later on in the show. Before we get started, we'd like to remind you about the Network Collective membership community. Join Network Collective as we take the next step to connect network engineers. With our community membership, we are bridging the gap between engineers in the trenches and the information they need to take the next step in their careers. This is your opportunity to be more than just a listener to the Network Collective. For more information, visit thenetworkcollective.com. All right, Eric. It's been a long time since we've talked. Well, since the last IETF, I would guess that was, um, oh, where was that? It was um, Vancouver or something, right? I don't remember exactly the last time I saw you. I think it was that, that area. And um, I know that you've moved on and you now work for George Mason University as an academic. Yes. Yeah. So, I'm an assistant professor of cybersecurity at George Mason. That is really cool because um, I didn't even know George Mason had a cybersecurity program. Uh, what you need to do is while you're there, tell them they need a network design program. Okay. I'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know some people who can teach it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So, I think that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about analytics and security, which I think is primarily going to go down the path of DDoS attack signatures, stuff like that. So why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about DNS attack signatures. I know that um, when we were at VeriSign together, we were look, working on this a lot. And I know Roland works on this a lot over at Arbor and um, the dot signaling group is working on this area a lot and thinking about how you take attack signatures and understand how an enterprise or how somebody can react to those and understand what to do in relation to those kinds of problems or what's going on. So, you know, if you were going to look at something and say, oh, well, I know there's an attack coming. I mean, how do you know that kind of thing? What kind of signatures are you looking for? I mean, what is it? How does that work? Or, or just give us a general idea. Yeah. So I think the first thing that I would sort of point out is that um, there's sort of, there's no one size fits all for attacks, um, especially these days. And so um, you wind up looking for, uh, you know, some of the most obvious attacks are the large sledgehammer um, volumetric attacks where you can't help but miss it uh, or you can't help but not miss it. Um, and, and those, you know, usually you find those out when you're already getting buried and, uh, you know, you sort of, you take, you go to sort of extreme measures to sort of get yourself back on your feet or something. But there's a whole myriad of other things to look for too, from weak signal to things that are non-obvious in large flows of, uh, of attack traffic. And, and that's what a lot of the work I did uh, focused on was, you know, instead of just sort of the obvious, we're getting buried, but, you know, there's something else going on. What exactly is it? So we'd have a sort of a, an alerting aspect where you sort of do a bunch of profiling. You're very proactive about baselining over time during peacetime traffic. And that way, when there's an anomaly, you can sort of detect whether there's some intrusion or there's some sort of subtle attack or there's an overt brute force attack happening. And so um, it winds up being, I think, the case that a lot of our automated discovery um, techniques like using machine learning ML or something like that help get us started 
But I think we're getting to the point now, in my opinion, is that we are getting back to needing real expertise in what actually is happening, like network engineers, people that have real context about what data actually means. So we can use automated tools to signal something to us, but then we have to have real engineers, people with real expertise go and actually say what's happening. So that you really can tell, oh my gosh, it's this other thing. There's an exfiltration happening or it's a, a MX spam run. We, we would have missed it. Thank goodness we have this detection in these experts. So, so let's back up a second. So to begin with, we, we talk about signatures for an attack. Like one that I know of is I'm out on the internet and I see a BGP route hijack. Well, a lot of people think they're just hijacking a route for playing around or trying to smack a website or something like that. But in reality, some of these BGP hijacks relate to um, actually being able to send large volume spam, right? I mean, you might hijack an address space so that you can overcome someone's spam filters or their whitelist, get onto the whitelist for a particular spam protection service by hijacking the address space that's known valid and, uh, you know, and then you run out there. So that might be the kind of signature that you're looking for is like, I see a hijack and then I immediately see, I start looking for MX queries or I start looking for something like that. That's going to help me understand like that there is an attack going on. So that's the kind of correlation that you're doing, right? Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because I think that kind of also um, brings up another issue, which is that a lot of our defenses are, um, are very focused on um, specific protocols or specific walks. And what you just described is what I would call a, like a, a cross-modal or multimodal attack. You know, I'm using the routing infrastructure and I'm exploiting some aspect of that. And then I'm, I'm capitalizing on the fact that I've hijacked a route to do something in another protocol, you know, with email or something like that. And then there might be a side effect that I see in DNS, but, if my DNS engineers, my routing engineers, and my mail engineers are all different people, and they're not, you know, looking at these sort of signals that are correlated in time, but, you know, seem to be different otherwise, then we miss a lot of that. And I think that's one of the things that's hampered us as a community is we have a lot of expertise that's very siloed, and we need to be able to have our tools or our experts look more broadly. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Okay. So describe some attack signatures you've seen in the past that might be interesting. I mean, we talked about MX spam campaigns, but like, or DNS any attack. I mean, kind of describe some of these signatures that you've seen in the past and kind of like what would key you in if you were a network engineer looking at a particular traffic flow or queries against the DNS or something like that, what would clue you in that I actually need to go spend more time looking at this and understand this? Yeah, so um, I think the, probably one of my favorite examples is the MX spam um, example. And that was a case where, um, you know, by baselining traffic and understanding what types of queries, for example, so this takes the DNS to, you know, uh, this takes a focus on DNS very, very clearly. Um, when you look at, at what sort of types of queries are being made from various sources and you profile it and baseline it. And then all of a sudden you don't see a huge amount of extra traffic, but you see way more traffic for a type of record that you know, relates to mail servers or the MX record. Then, you know, it's easy to miss that if it's not setting off volume alarms. So if you're just saying, oh, I consider a DDoS a volumetric attack. And if it's not a volumetric attack, I don't really have the sensitivity to look closely at it. Um, you'd miss the fact that, if I see a, a huge spike in end systems querying for MX records that they previously didn't do, at least not at that scale, you, you might not then go and take a closer look and realize there was an outbreak of malware that was doing direct MX, direct MX spam runs, like spam from your home laptop because it was part of a botnet. Um, this wouldn't necessarily affect somebody that was a DNS registry provider. It's not something that would hamper them at all, but it's important threat intelligence and sort of the, the evolving world of, um, 
of cyber information sharing where you might want to pass that telemetry on to people that do care about spam, that do care about spear phishing, that do care about botnet infections. And it's another example of like, if we hide too much in our silos and we don't sort of share this information, we miss the ability to sort of, um, you know, spread herd immunity. Right. So that's interesting. And another thing I think that might be pretty common is the signatures around attacks from IoT devices and burner attacks, right? So like if you look at reflection attacks versus burner attacks, maybe it might be worth explaining the difference between those two because a lot of people on listening to this are network engineers and they're probably going, dude, you just went like left field and I have no idea what a burner attack is or even what a DNS signature is. What are you talking about, right? So maybe some of that might be good to explain real fast. Well, so yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff I think is, is sort of, it's, it's hard to get, it's sort of hard to get too deep. It's hard to get into it without getting too deep into it. So, I mean, like I, I would focus, so I'd focus like probably more specifically on the DNS attack uh, signature because I think it, it's sort of one of those things that it'll literally highlight uh, ways to sort of generalize it to, to other differences. And so like um, what I was talking about a second ago with the MX attack, I guess I kind of, I blew right by what that really was, what I was really saying with that. Um, looking at, at, at standard query traffic, looking at, and, and DNS is just an example protocol for this. So I think there's a lot of ways you could baseline um, uh, clients. Other protocols, right. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so, um, but with DNS, you know, it's really easy to say like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to uh, look at what you usually ask me for, you being whomever I, is one of my transacting parties. So typically it's a large resolver, but sometimes it's a small resolver. And even knowing who those regular resolvers are is really important. So uh, I guess what I would sort of sort of fall back on is that you know, your steady state is not really steady. You never really have the same set of characters, you know, querying you at a, at a large, you know, infrastructure provider, unless you start to sort of draw lines around people. Like these are my top talkers. Uh, the other guys are important too, but these are the guys that are consistent and uh, you know, that list may change, but then inside that, how consistently are they asking for certain things? Are they taking certain behaviors? Um, how, how static or how predictable is their, like their IPTTL? Like when they get to me, you know, routing anomalies or routing changes can cause the IPTTL to change, but does it change a lot? Can I build a profile around that? And can I then use that when someone's spoofing? So getting back to your, your reflector attack, that um, your comment about reflector attacks, uh, that's a case where, you know, you're either leveraging a registry, you're banging on a registry, or the registry just has an incidence of somebody else being leveraged for a reflector attack. Even that is a bit of a rabbit hole because there's lots of different ways to actually, um, you could mean a lot of different things when you say reflector attack. So I think coming up with a sort of a nomenclature for what we're talking about with attacks, it sounds kind of boring, but it kind of is really important to, to your comment about what's this kind of attack versus that kind of attack versus other attack. We can't have the same discussion about DDoS if we have different meanings for a reflector attack. There's right. at least three I could think of. And right. so I think as boring as it is, um, we need to start this sort of coming up with a way to have common phraseology when we're talking about attacks and, and what we're worried about. Because reflector attacks are, are huge volumetric attacks usually. They're obvious. I'm, we're not even talking about the subtle ones. Like the right. spam run is very subtle because it's not really an attack on DNS. DNS is just a side effect. Yeah, right. You're just seeing it in the DNS because the MX records are being queried at a higher rate than you would expect. Mm -hmm. um, and often those types of attacks can be masked by a reflection attack or something like that. So right. in reality, somebody might be taking down a university website or a bank website and you think, oh, they're trying to damage that university or, web or that bank. But in reality, what they're doing is they're masking their use of DNS to do something different entirely. And they're just 
it's like a, um, it's not really a side channel attack because a side channel attack is actually using a valid way of doing things that you wouldn't expect in a way you wouldn't expect. But this is more, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, this is smog and mirrors, right? Or fog and smoke or something. And I'm out there, I'm blowing all this smoke around and creating this fog of war and getting everybody to focus on one thing. And Oh, by the way, over here on this side, I'm actually attacking. You know. Right. No, that's exactly right. Um, and that's, you know, the, the TTPs are really evolving so that in some cases they'll, if they want to take down an infrastructure, they may use multiple TTPs to just really bang on it from different places. But what you're saying is exactly right, which is a lot of times the obvious big sledgehammer attack is to distract you from what's happening in the, from the back door. And right. that could be data exfiltration. So for example, if I use DNS as an exfiltration vector, which is um, a very, unfortunately, very common technique, uh, I might be worried that, uh, you know, an InfoSec team or someone, it, it becomes sensitive to the fact that there's some strange DNS anomalies and maybe I should go look at it. So a lot of miscreants will bang on the front door with a massive volumetric attack to really distract everyone while they trigger an exfiltration or some other more subtle attack or a beachhead attack or some internal scanning, something where it, it sounds like, yeah, who would fall for that? But, you know, they do, you know, your, your oh, teams are not huge. You have to yeah, it's, it's, it's a DDoS attack on your human resources. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Because, you know, how many people staff a 24 by 7 SOC? Right? Yeah. How big are your IR teams, even for a big company? They're, they're yeah. just not staffed to do you know, a whole bunch of different active attacks at the same time because rarely does that happen. And security is like insurance. You, know, you, you spend a lot of time trying to talk yourself out of investing it <laughs> until you need it. That's exactly right. And there's also this concept of um, conservation of threat, right? Where we will actually see a big threat and ignore smaller threats because we see the big threat. It's just a mental thing. But as the threat level escalates, we start seeing smaller and smaller things as threats. There was a really good paper on this. Just uh, I think I pointed to it on Rule 11 or I'm pointing to it this week or something about it anyway, about conservation of threat and this concept. And so I think that that also is playing on the social engineering angle where you're actually trying to conserve threat. You're trying to get people or to take advantage of people's conservation of threat concept to um, socially engineering them into not seeing something that's going on. Now, exfiltration through DNS is interesting. I don't think I've ever encountered much of that, but um, I can see, I mean, it's basically a side channel attack on DNS itself. You're basically using uh, a rate of query. What are you using there to exfiltrate data? Cause I don't, think I've ever encountered that. So there's, there's a few different ways to, that people do it, but I, I think probably the easiest and the most straightforward way is I'll, um, I'll point the finger at myself. So um, back when I was in graduate school, uh, I, I downloaded a, a, I actually don't know if it's still available, but I imagine it probably is a freely available package that would take uh, your uh, IP traffic and encapsulate it in base 64 encoded DNS queries. And then you could send that out through captive portals. So you could go to Starbucks <laughs> And uh, back in the days when, when Wi-Fi wasn't free and uh, you could build an IP over DNS tunnel. And uh, I, you know, back in the day, even submitted papers uh, over, <laughs> over IP over <laughs> DNS tunnels. And, uh, and that's not even really like the, well, the way that really dangerous miscreants do it today, because that's kind of obvious. You get a big flow of data. You've got a TCP session going over DNS. Guess what? There's a lot of really weird DNS traffic and it's all type zero, the null type. So it's obvious, but that's one way you can do it. You literally can, run IP over DNS. Um, miscreants are a lot smarter in the sense that they'll, they'll take big chunks of data, they'll break it into little pieces, and then they'll just encode those in very infrequent DNS queries that go out, and then they'll catch them on some infrastructure on the other side. And if you're not looking at this very weak intermittent signal, you'll miss it. Like, what's, how often are you going to sort of get really wound around the axle 
that a strange DNS query got emitted once in a blue moon. I mean, you should. Your SEM should find it for you. You should pay attention when you get these alerts, and there are a lot of signatures around, so people you know, have a lot of tools to help them with that. But this, it just sort of at a meta level, it's like, oh, a really weird DNS query left my, my network. To, to some server I've never heard of before. It's not to quad nine, quad one. It's not the people that I normally use. It's going out to some server, but that's okay. Somebody just has a misconfigured laptop and, right. you know, or whatever, a phone. And, right. you know. and if, you, if you don't have like a, a list of sites that you worry about or a list, of, you can't really whitelist anymore. But if you run a little snitch or you run something on your machine to say, what are all the DNS queries that I'm, my browser is launching off just because I'm surfing the web, you wouldn't be able to name most of those sites. It's like, you know, yeah. who's that? And it's like, you are on a perfectly valid web page. You just don't recognize where that query is going to. So, I mean, you finding that signal is really, really hard it, as opposed to it's just like, Oh, it's just my browser prefetching. So yeah, yeah it's really hard. And uh, that's why, you know, there's a lot of information sharing and there's a lot of lists and you really worry about whether your list of malicious domains is, properly curated does it have like old stuff on there that should come off does it have the newest stuff on there and uh it, it's it's really easy to find disposable domains and that's sort of a, an interesting segue into the new gtlds and the ICANN space where you know it's like i can get a new domain and under a new gtld and you absolutely never heard of that domain before so you know it turns out it's malicious and how would you know because you're block listing because that because that happens a lot, right? I mean, the DNS system is used a lot for this purpose, which is they'll just go out and register two thousand nonsense domains or a million nonsense domains, and then they're just not used for anything. And then they'll use dynamic DNS to register those very quickly and use those as the core of a botnet or something like that. And then you know you just don't recognize these things, so you don't know what they are. They could be anything. Um, you know, the other day I was hitting something and it was some internal URL within my company, and I don't. I have no idea whether that's valid or invalid. It was some string of numbers and letters that looked pretty okay to me. You know, how, how, how am I supposed to know? Right. All I know it was at the right .com address. Well, that doesn't mean anything in the real world, right? right. Um, it was a subdomain of the right .com address, but that doesn't mean anything because it's easy enough to do like a man in the middle or an injection attack where you're doing cash poisoning in DNS and causing something like that to flip to an MX or a CX, sorry, a CX record and flatten out to something else. And then all of a sudden you're on a malicious server and it all yeah. looks fine from the host and it all looks fine from your edge, from your edge network and all the monitoring you're doing. So it's kind of, it's almost as much. So talk about the, maybe a little bit about the anomaly. So you talk a little bit about traffic flow, right? That's one thing you can look at is traffic flow rates and oddities in traffic flow. And so like, what should people look for there? Do you have any sense beyond just saying we baseline and, and do something with it? Or is there more to it than that? Well, I mean, so this, this gets to be sort of a, a really complicated conversation because, um, go, so we, what we do you have a deep for? audience. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, no, it's, it's sort of like, <laughs> but I mean, like, so why would you ask a, a DNS person that runs a registry to help you figure out whether there was a, you know, virulent botnet infection in an ISP or that, uh, you know, that, you know, grandma's getting going to get a whole bunch of spam that she's not used to or something like that. And it's because, you know, the, the DNS people, you know, should be emitting telemetry that is consumed by, you know, uh, stakeholders from completely different communities that may not know they need information from the DNS community. And, and that's just a, an example. So, I mean, Going back to, um, yeah, so, so what you would baseline may be uh, something that is of interest to somebody other than you. You know what I mean? Like I, the, the, the spam component has got very little to do with someone that runs a DNS registry. But um, 
it's really important to other stakeholders. And that's why that's kind of the underpinnings for what I think is, is a very, it's an up and coming field in the cybersecurity. It's the threat intelligence, cyber information sharing people. And that's the, how do I know what to share for, to whom? And so, you know, you know, building a bridge between, you know, infrastructure providers that do like protocol analysis and look for anomalies that may not know what those anomalies are necessarily good for, but can admit that as important telemetry that other stakeholders can pull down and benefit from, uh, I think is really critical. And I think that kind of actually relates to what we were talking about with those domain names you were talking about a second ago. Like, Going back to, to your example, when you were saying like, hey, you saw a link and you clicked on it and you looked like it was an internal link or it looked like it was a .com domain. So, I mean, why am I not going to click on it? You know, that, that's a real, real existential problem. And it, it's even related to when we get to a website and you, you, you get a browser warning saying, warning, the cert for this site looks you know, bad in some way. Do you want to go ahead or do you not want to go ahead? <laughs> and you haven't really given the user a choice. The user is trying to conduct a transaction. You know, they want to go to a website for right or for wrong. And you've like, do you want to just not do anything today? Or do you want to try and do something? It's like, I'm going to click okay because you have a really, <laughs> real choice. So if you see a link and you're not sure you should follow it, but you're following that link because you have an objective, saying I'm a little bit worried about this, you don't have a recourse. And so, you know, being able to say there is a list of domain names that you should not click on because some of them were seen by protocol engineers at a DNS registry. Some of them have been seen in an ISP, you know, a honeypot or something like that. Like this is why we need sort of these cyber information sharing networks, not just to spew out information. And that's unfortunate what a lot of people sort of do is like, Oh, okay, I'll get on board and I'll just send you way too much information for you to do anything with, but to actually have like telemetry that's useful say, Hey, I have an anomaly. Here's why it's important. I'm sending it out. I hope it does some good to some, for somebody somewhere. I mean, this is part of like a sort of a very deep open research challenge that a lot of academics are sort of becoming used to, but a lot of like uh, intelligence agencies are already trying to wire up with, uh, with industry. So, so basically if you want a new career after your network engineering career, you could go to work as a cyber intelligence. Yes, no, that's exactly right. So, I, so I, I would actually really want to jump in on cheek, but no. I, so we have a lot of uh, our cyber work is happening now with automated detection. You know, and and not what I was talking about before, where we would inspect and look at MX blah blah blah. No, like a machine learning algorithm that says, "Hey, I've got a big spike, and and I can sort of quantify that this is important." And then people say, "Aha, a big spike." And then that's it. So like, yeah, a spike is bad, right? We need protocol experts to go and say, why does that spike matter? What is it so, actually? So there's actually, there's actually a problem in that space that, um, that is interesting in that just because you see a big spike doesn't necessarily mean anything. And just because you don't see a big spike doesn't necessarily mean anything. So machine learning seems to be limited to some degree in this realm in that the machine learning is just going to tell you what is the average and what steps outside the average, which may or may not always be useful. Sometimes it may not be useful because it may not detect things that it needs to detect. And then we can kind of talk about Yvonne's favorite topic, which is uh, IPSs and firewalls and how useful those things really are because they seem to rely on this a lot. So, I mean, is there a solution in that space or is this like something we just have to deal with or is it we just, we need smarter people. I mean, how does this work? So I'll give you my perspective and it's just fine. Um, <laughs> I think machine learning is really, really good. It's really important. It solves a really big problem of looking at a huge amount of data and giving you some idea of something. Um, I think if we lean on it too heavily, 
and that's just, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably not being completely, you know, good about uh, representing all the good things it can do, but basically it only can get you so far. The machine can only give you some indication. You really need deep understanding of the, in, the ways things are interconnected to know what to do with that. So getting a signal from an IPS or an IDS or anything else saying something's going on, it might actually give you a very clear understanding of what's going on. And that's great. But I think as we start to rely on only that approach, it's going to let us down. And at some point there'll be a correction. If we're like, Oh, machine learning, we used to think it was great, but it didn't solve all of our problems. So forget it. No, I think what we ought to do is we ought to say, this will allow us to take people with deep expertise and focus them up on what's really going on. Like, you know, your IR team should be full of people that know how to look deeply from a signal from an ML device. Um, and you know, I think it's, it's sort of, it's evolving, but I do think there is this danger that at some point people will backlash against ML never actually completely closed the loop and protected my network. So maybe, maybe it was bad. And, um, you know, it, it's a tool. And, and right. So can you ever fully protect a network anyway? No, I don't think so. I mean, like it, it was, it was nice when we used to all sit behind firewalls and all of our assets stayed in one place and we could build a perimeter and protect. And then people started taking their laptops home or bringing their cell phones in. And all of a sudden it's like, what's my network perimeter? It's like, there is no network perimeter because my devices are hopping in and out. And so, yeah, I mean, can you ever really protect a network? I mean, I guess one step at a time, right? <laughs> one step at a time, yeah. We would like to take a moment to tell you a bit more about today's sponsors. If you're like a lot of enterprise customers out there today, you're probably under pressure to spend less money on your WAN circuits and connectivity. Operationally, WAN costs are some of the highest ongoing expenses when it comes to the network. And due to this, there are often complex requirements put on you to maximize the investment into these costly resources. It doesn't have to be this way. CoreBTS would like to help you save money on your WAN and look like a rock star in the process by taking advantage of the intelligent connectivity provided by SD-WAN. CoreBTS has a pool of talented network engineers and architects ready to help you take your WAN to the next level. If you think you could use some help in bringing your WAN into the future, CoreBTS would love to have that conversation with you. You can start that conversation for free by emailing CoreBTS at network.collective at corebts.com. Again, that's network.collective at corebts.com. Cumulus Networks is bringing soul to the network. That's S-O-U-L, simple, open, untethered Linux. But why is running your network on an open Linux-based platform an improvement over what you have today? In a word, flexibility. Cumulus Linux is the world's most flexible network operating system and will help you build a data center as efficient and flexible as the world's largest data centers. 85% of IT decision makers say they are still several years away from reaching the full potential of digital transformation. This is mostly due to their legacy infrastructure, which is complex, proprietary, and difficult to scale. As IT organizations evaluate their environments, they're realizing the need for more flexible networks purpose-built for automation. The reality is that network automation isn't a one-size-fits-all proposition. The selection and placement of the technologies in play requires careful thinking and well-considered decision-making. This is why having a soulless, rigid, and inflexible infrastructure as the basis of your automation strategy can bring about additional challenges, and why having the flexibility that Cumulus Linux provides can empower you to maximize that investment into automation. 
If you or your company is contemplating how to automate your network, or even if you're well on your way to a fully automated infrastructure, Cumulus would like to offer you, our listeners, some of their lessons learned along the way. You can get this paper with automation principles, tips, tricks, and suggestions by going to cumulusnetworks.com slash ncautomation. Again, that's cumulusnetworks.com slash ncautomation. So Yvonne, you had some questions about IPS. You've been very quiet. I'm worried about you. No, I'm, I'm listening. My, my <laughs> I don't have anything valuable to add. I try to be quiet. Uh, <laughs> great job. No, I, I, you know, I, I see, and some of it is regulatory. You know, there's a, there's a reliance on IPS that's, um, that's pretty intense out there in the enterprise. And, and because of the way traffic is changing with all kinds of networking technologies, Routing all that traffic through a central appliance, I don't believe is going to be practical in the future. Um, and so my questions have really been about how, how do we secure that traffic and understand what's going on in our environments? We can't push everything through a central appliance that gives us what we believe is mystical visibility into everything when really it doesn't, but we think it does. And so it makes us feel good about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I think I think that actually segues into what I think is um, is, is forming into uh, one of the sort of canonical um, tussles in in the internet that's that's forming, which is that you know people are trying to decide how much of everything should I encrypt, and there there's becoming a sort of a tussle between our threat intelligence people need to do some level of inspection, whether it's you know an IPS or anything else, um, even if it's just on a mail server to inspect spam, but if that you know, email is all encrypted, like end to end encrypted, like something that like Dane would sort of enable, then how do I even know if there's a malicious payload? Because only the MUA at the end can actually decrypt it and look at it. Um, and, and, you know, there's any number of examples. I, I, I can go into a few of them if, if, if we think it makes sense. But I mean, you know, the, the point is this tussle is forming of like, I have to encrypt everything closer and closer to the user with absolutely no opportunity for inspection in the middle, because that's where bad guys sit. But, you know, what, what you're talking about in an enterprise network is like, you know, your InfoSec team is there to protect your infrastructure and inspection is part of what they do necessarily. But as the protocols that are coming out of like the IETF or something like that, like TLS 1.3, begin to sort of tighten it up so that you can't have inspection, you can't have intermediaries participate because they're all presumed to be malicious, then our InfoSec, our threat, intel, our threat engineers can't help anymore. And, and that's, that's a real problem because that's a... Yeah dogmatic so it devalues it devalues the ips go ahead yeah well no i was just like i was talking about this misconception that there's this magical box in the middle that fixes everything for us there's also this conception that well if i encrypt everything i'm safe but really you encrypt bad payloads and good payloads right encrypting it doesn't tell you anything about the quality or value of the payload it just means people can't see it so and it's also really this contradiction or, or juxtaposition between privacy and security. They're not the same thing, right? Encryption gets you privacy, but it doesn't get you security. Um, and, and I think that's also a challenge that we have in the industry. Russ has, Russ is the emitter of one of my all time favorite quotes about that. I don't know if you remember the doorknob. Quote, Russ. <laughs> oh, no, oh, comes the Russ's. I need to make it out. <laughs> okay. Wait, what is it? <laughs> so, so Russ, Russ once famously said, um, if, if I sign my doorknob, does that mean my house is safe? 
<laughs> so it's sort of like, yeah, exactly. And, and, and there was this big push, uh, however many years ago, not too many, where they said, like, we need to have HTTPS everywhere, which, you know, spawned less encrypt and everything else. And uh, the idea was if every website ran HTTPS, what a safer world we'd have. And it's like, I'm not really sure, to your point exactly, I'm not really sure why it's safer for me to go to an HTTPS server that's going to exfiltrate my data <laughs> instead of HTTP. <laughs> well, my data will be hidden while it's being exfiltrated. That's true. So, you know, thank goodness my InfoSec engineers can't protect me. <laughs> right. So the exfiltration of my data will be private, but it will be secure. <laughs> It'll be between you and the miscreant. <laughs> no, no intermediaries. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. You know, basically, I think a lot of people and, and a lot of people have for a long time understood that, you know, encryption is not the same thing as security. But there's a blurring of that understanding now, especially as it's becoming sort of rampant. People are becoming sort of, uh, they're becoming sort of frothing at the mouth about, I've got to encrypt everything because I guess that makes me safe. And it's, it's really hurting us. Well, I think there's also a privacy implication there because we think that it's okay to put private information on the web as long as it's encrypted while it's getting there. Right. right. <laughs> like, like, thank this goodness, my Facebook page, I have a yeah. to that. So I can yeah. go and like, tell people where I'm sitting and what I'm eating. And Yeah, exactly. Like, it's okay if it's snapshot every dinner I eat for the next four years. Right. So long as it's all encrypted when I put it on the internet. Like, Right. What? <laughs> that, that way it's sort of like, oh, look at you. You're traveling, which means you're not at home right now. But that was an HTTPS site, so I'm sure it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So going back to the IPS, it seems like we're going to face this challenge no matter what we do, right? And crap, trip, crap traffic's going to be more and more encrypted no matter what we do. We're just going to have to deal with this. So maybe we need to go back to the concept of analytics and thinking about how we look at traffic flows and endpoints where traffic is going. And to your point, Yvonne, I think pushing everything through an IPS is crazy. Just like pushing it through a firewall is crazy. Like we need to get monitoring in the devices on the edges somehow. That seems to be more like the router should be doing this monitoring um, as it's pushing things at the edges and all throughout the network. It shouldn't be like part of the thing I think we have going on here is that we want to make security something separate, right? Those house sec guys over there, those infosec guys, they sit over in their little dark corner and we're network engineers and we do whatever we do and they do whatever they do and we talk to them whenever we have to. But that's pretty much what we do. And I think we've got to stop that. I mean, think, I think this goes to a skills gap issue in network engineering in particular and in the infosec community in particular and, you know, about how we treat the other side in terms of knowledge and understanding a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, I think that silo, uh, you know, certainly in my experience that that silo exists in in a way that, you know, sometimes a lot less healthy than other times. And, uh, you know, it's almost always unhealthy. <laughs> I, know, I was trying to be politically correct. <laughs> Don't be politically correct. It's okay. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, so I think it's really easy to say, like, you know, like a uh, production engineer, uh, you know, is, is dealing with production issues and an infosec engineer may be dealing with like corporate issues. And, and why would those two cross pollinate? They only really ever run afoul of each other because they've got different objectives. And uh, I think there really is a, a missed opportunity for, you know, expertise sharing in both directions. Um, uh, and, and that's just super prosaic to say so, so, so blah, but, um, but, I, I, <laughs> but I think it's absolutely true. You know, uh, you know, a, a network engineer might be informed by the way in which a, an infosec engineer would look at disparate pieces of data from different protocols and say they're related and that might actually work in everyone's favor to sort of see, you know, what is each side actually um, working on? Um, and I think a lot of the tension I've seen in the past comes from since we don't have a, 
a sort of a central proxy model in most enterprises anymore where all traffic goes through an IPS or something like that. A lot of times we have SEMs now that just gather telemetry that's emitted from different appliances, different places around the network, and then they come together and then machine learning or something says, ah, I'm trying to fuse this together and issue an alert to an IR team or an infosec team or something because I saw some things that may be correlated because I can't inspect the traffic anymore. You know, like the SEMs and, and that stuff may be viewed as kind of as a reaction to the fact that we no longer inspect all of our traffic because we can't, because we don't, because we won't, whatever. And it is much harder. And so the SEMs do, a, a, they, a lot of them have a lot of noise in there. So a lot of time things get ignored or they get triaged. But that's kind of where we are today is that, you know, a network engineer might be told, I want you to have your devices all emit information to my SEM and my incident response team is going to sort of decide what they should react to and what they should. Interesting. So what about overlay networks? Any thoughts there about security? Is it the same sort of problem? I know, see, Yvonne's in the overlay networking world, so we can talk about overlays. Hey, I like overlays. <laughs> it's okay. So, so, I mean, does it help solve the problem to have a stupid underlay and an intelligent overlay? I mean, is that... Does segregation, does hierarchical um, or vertical segregation of different kinds of things, separation of policy and stuff like that, what part does any of that play or do you have any thoughts in that area? I mean, overlays are used by all different walks of people from miscreants to people that are actually trying to do traffic engineering. So, I mean, like when you say our overlay is good, it's like, yeah, man, I could... I could, I could use an overlay to exfiltrate data from you. I mean, sort of, overlays, <laughs> well, overlays are just an abstraction. They're absolutely totally useful depending on how you're using them, right? And, uh, you know, depending on how you construct your overlay, it might make it more difficult for your security engineers to see what's going on, and that may be accidentally or on purpose. But, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, clearly overlays are very, very critical to network engineer, no doubt. So what about complexity? Do you think complexity is playing a big role? Our networks seem to be getting more complex. Do you think complexity is playing a role in making the struggle? I mean, like we talk about not being able to shove everything through a single IPS or through a single firewall any longer. And that seems to be a result of the complexity of the traffic we're running and stuff like that. So any thoughts around um, like what is going on in the complexity realm and stuff like that in relation to uh, network security and, and analytics, just getting the analytic data you need. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, so that's a, that's a, a really wide sort of discussion topic. So I'll, I'll sort of maybe just pick a random piece of it to start. I think um, complexity has definitely begun to work against us in, in a very alarming way in the sense that I think a lot of people think they're reducing complexity by making things more complex. And, and, and specifically, I'm talking about our increasing reliance on things like cloud infrastructure, where it's like, oh, it's way easier for me because all I do is I use the cloud now. So my complexity is reduced. And it's like, no, now your systemic dependency is way worse than it ever was before because you've got these external dependencies over which you have no control and probably no understanding of what you're actually reliant on when you start depending on one or more clouds. And, and I think... My understanding is that when enterprises sit down to actually audit what their reliance on cloud infrastructures are, they come back with hundreds of private clouds they're relying on from like vendor clouds of various places. Like it, 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 my understanding is it tends to alarm people that are going and actually conscientiously auditing. Who do we actually rely on? Oh my God. And what is their infrastructure? I don't really know. Do they have a compliance framework I can trust? I don't know. And um, is my data that if I left it in my corporate network, at least behind a perimeter that's got some implicit security, is it secure when I, look, when I ship it over to a cloud? How do they protect it? 
Was it encrypted when I left it? You know, who has the keys to that? Now, if I've got, you know, remotely encrypted data. It was done data, through an ACTPS session. <laughs> good. So the transit was secure. That's perfect. So now that it's at rest in somebody else's infrastructure, I'll just trust them. <laughs> but wait, it's encrypted at rest and we own the keys. Okay, sure. You, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I no, I mean, that's, if, if, if you encrypt your data before you put it in the cloud and you own the keys, good for you. But yeah, if, if, if you're saying the cloud provider says, oh, don't worry, we've got the keys and we'll encrypt it. Yeah, then that's sort of the standard response, right? And then there's the CASB market where they're like, oh, well, our job will be to secure your presence on the cloud because we'll be the, the broker, the security broker for you. And, you know, that, that's, that's a very important approach that's just full of a lot of, you know, operational difficulties actually getting it to work properly. You used a phrase that, that I've not heard a lot, that it seems like something we should be talking about more, which is systemic dependency. I really like the idea of that, that we have a system of all these interdependent parts that we don't fully understand and that we frankly can't fully understand. And, and that it, to, to jump on one of Russ's hobby horses, um, <laughs> we're always making trade-offs. Always, always, always. And so the we, we do get a certain amount of operational simplicity with the cloud. There are details that we don't have to worry about in the infrastructure realm. But um, from a connectivity standpoint, from a security standpoint, from a visibility standpoint, we're giving up a lot or at least giving up visibility to a lot. Um, and I think those are interesting conversations that really the industry's not yet having because cloud. Yeah. And to be clear, it's not like I'm saying categorically cloud's bad. Um, but right, to I agree. Exactly, just understand what you're exposing yourself to. Know which clouds you're in and have some understanding, if you can, over what the implication of using those clouds are for the different types of data. So um, one of, when I was at Verisign, we, we wrote a paper that was all about systemic dependencies. And uh, it, it was a... Uh, it, it sort of didn't get as deep as to actually looking at cloud infrastructure, but basically proposed, you know, you need to sort of look at all the different pieces of your protocol that you're, it was sort of like focused on network connections. But the idea was you should really have a way to map this out for whatever it is you're talking about. And one of the observations we made in the paper, which I think was actually really interesting was that, you know, you could actually use something like crypto to reduce your systemic dependencies in the sense that if I've got something that I've now protected with crypto, I need to care about how I'm managing the keys and everything else. But once I've got it secure, like object security, and I pitch it out to an untrustworthy infrastructure, if I can maintain that it's secure because I've encrypted it and I own the keys and I'm looking at those, I may not care what infrastructure it's on elsewhere. In other words, I may have reduced my attack surface to the point where I don't need to trust this or understand the systemic dependencies of where it is now because it can't be lied or it can't be uh, the, the infrastructure can't lie or take it. It's protected. So it's like the, the systemic dependencies work, I think has some really deep wells that we could do. We could delve into as like a research community and really understand because I'm never going to be able to know what my cloud infrastructure's uh, my cloud provider's infrastructure looks like it. They're just not going to tell me and it's going to change as soon as I would find out anyway. So how can I, you know, quantify some protection around using the cloud? Cause it's here to stay at least for now. Right. And, and another thing that we ran into recently, I was talking to somebody about is that along those same lines is this concept of like, you talk about systemic dependencies and how you think about it differently is that I know companies that actually encrypt their hard drives and then they don't bother shredding their hard drives mm -hmm. because they throw away the key. Yeah. Yep. When they sell the hard drive, they throw away the key. So it can't, the data can't be retrieved anyway. So that's the same sort of thing you're talking about where I can encrypt yep. the data, throw it in the cloud and 
I don't really need to worry about it at that point. But now then we come back to the encryption versus IPS, IDS type stuff and worrying about, first of all, I can't shove everything through a single location on my network anymore. The network is too complex. I have overlays. I have all this stuff going on. I simply cannot do this. So I'm back to the SIMS model where I'm trying to gather information from a lot of places and push it into a single repository and then do some type of analytics on it. And then I got to worry about whether those analytics are accurate, whether I have smart people looking at those analytics and understanding what's really going on. And then if I encrypt everything, which I'm trying to do to get it out to the cloud without worrying about it, now I've kind of blown my analytics. So it's like this whole, um, you know, everything working together and thinking about how it's actually going to work as a system. And we don't do that. We honestly yeah. we just don't do that today at all. And, and it'd be really hard to figure out how we would for any kind of a sizable network. Because what you just described, every one of those steps is there because it was needed for something. And it was decided by the various stakeholders in the organization to do it that way. And the idea of like, can't we just make it all simple? Is like, no. I mean, the, we, our, our infrastructures are large and complex normally because they have to be these days. And so, yeah, the, the horses left the barn on trying to sort of like build this conscientious that we have to sort of play catch up now. And um, one thing that you sort of just to sort of jump back to what you were saying a second ago and just add in, if I do that encryption, whether it's the hard drive or, you know, just I'm going to secure my overlay and, and the data has got to sort of, I have to worry about my keys. And that's something we as a community are not good at at all. Like, because it, we haven't needed to worry about the keys uh, for, you know, we've had protocols that you object security for a long time, but we haven't really operationalized them. Now we're getting to the point where we could with like um, protocols like Dane and stuff like that. And also it's going to really matter where do you leave your keys. So, and it's more, you know, I would argue it's more complicated with object security than it is with like TLS. With TLS, whether it's HTTPS or something else, um, I've got a web server. It's got the private key. That's its job. It's going to start a transaction. So I, I worry about the key, but I don't really worry about the key because I can't. It's got to be on this system and it could get popped and whatever. But if I say I'm going to secure some data, like encrypt a file, and I'm going to transmit it to an untrustworthy cloud or, or whatever else, then or the hard drive, I'm going to throw away the keys. That means that the key is really, really important because if I give you an encrypted hard drive believing that it's safe because you don't have the key, well, then I have to be really sure that no one gets that key. And we've never really worried about that as a community much before. We have HSMs that do it. We have people that know how to do that in like cryptographic business offices and stuff like that. But, you know, most people are like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> learning curve we have there. The, the opposite is also true. If I, if that data matters to me and I really need it, I need to be able to have the keys, which means they can't be in one place. I need to have backups of them. Mm -hmm. I have to be sure that I can reliably get access to those keys. And then it, it's the same problem, right? We've yes. got, we've got to have those keys in multiple places, but we have to keep them safe. But, um, you know, it, high availability, but high security. That's and exactly right. Not always, you know, bedfellows with each other. Right. So, I mean, I, we haven't mentioned this sort of one of the, the common things that everyone mentioned. So I'm going to mention it now. Um, so like blockchain, so blockchain very much has that problem. Uh, blockchain has that problem in the sense that um, if I lose my key and I've got like a bunch of cryptocurrency, well, guess what happened to my cryptocurrency? You, you just threw your cash in the fire. Yeah. Right. It's the right. same as burning your cash in a right. fire. It's gone. Or if I put my key in some place that's easily accessible, then someone could steal it. And then it's not in a fire. It's in someone else's wallet and it's gone for good. You know what I mean? Like right. there's, there's this permanence or irrevocability of things like blockchain. So, you know, 
uh, people are sort of trying to figure out desperately, like how useful is it? Was it useful for, but it comes with this really great liability. We haven't learned to manage our crypto. And this is a, a, a notary system or whatever else you're using it for that's based on managing crypto. So that, you know, as much as people like that, we're going to have to get good at managing crypto to use it properly for anything real or operational. Yeah. It's cool. So Yvonne, I think we're kind of at a stopping point. Yep. I think 44 so. minutes. We're cool. Yeah. Good. So Eric, thanks for coming on and talking about all this. And um, maybe we'll have you back on the show to talk more about, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? We'll find uh, something. Yeah. We can talk about threat intelligence. We can talk more about DDoS, whatever you want. I'd love to come back. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Cool. So Eric, do you blog any place? Uh, I'm going to start. I'm looking for a place to do it. So See, that's just not, Good enough. You'll <laughs> get there. Are you on Twitter or any other social media platforms, LinkedIn, any of those things? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically. What's your Twitter I'm, handle? Uh, it's the same thing as my email address. Um, it's G-I-N-I-P-G-I-N-O-B. Okay. G-I-N-I-P-G-I-O-B. Okay. So if you want to follow Eric on Twitter, and then when he gets around to blogging in a couple of years, you can actually uh, no, announce it on Twitter, and you can, see, and you can get to it. <laughs> That's right. Tweet at me. Yeah. The blog is coming very soon. Okay, cool. And Yvonne, where can people find you? Yeah, the uh, poorly updated blog at esharp.net and on Twitter <laughs> at Sharp Network. Do I need to fuss at you as well? You can. Go ahead. It's a long <laughs> list. <laughs> and you can always find me at rule11.tech and always at the Network Collective, which is this great community of network engineers that we're building. And thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Network Collective. 